Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Jim Carrick-Burtwell, co-founder and CEO of Changeboard. Today, I'm joined by Alistair Campbell, a writer and strategist best known for his time in Downing Street as Tony Blair's Director of Communications. He's written 11 books in the last eight years, including six volumes of his diaries while working for Blair, three novels and a personal memoir on his battles with depression. Alistair now splits his time between campaigning, writing, speaking and consulting and will be appearing at Changeboard's Future Talent Conference alongside his friend Jeff McDonald to discuss how we can change the lens on mental health at a personal, societal and organisational level. In this podcast, we'll be discussing Alistair's insights about leadership. He's worked with, met and interviewed some of the world's great leaders in business and sport as well as politics. And we'll also explore some of his own insights about the, how to proactively manage your own mental health and well-being. I have to say, I, I was really looking forward to this as a bit of a sports junkie catching up with you. And for full disclosure, you're speaking at our conference and mental health and well-being is going to be yeah. a big theme. Um, but I'd really like to pick up to start with... Um, your book Winners, mm-hmm. um, where you looked at uh, business leaders, political leaders, sports leaders, prominent people, um, and seemed really interested in what they could learn from one another. Mm. And I wondered what had inspired that. Um, I think it's that. I think it's the fact that I've learned so much from other walks of life. Um, I, I felt, for example, when I was really full on in politics, that having a circle of friends that were very much in the sports world partly was an escape for me mm-hmm. but also I think it was it was an opportunity to see people in whether it was dealing with pressure whether it was setting goals and seeing how you met them whether it was building teams whether it was how you strategize realizing that there was a there was a, often a read across into the different the, the way that different sectors were looking at different challenges in 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 different ways but actually where you could apply lessons and did you actively court trying to find those lessons when you were i guess i don't know about actively courting it but i I, they they kind of confronted me i mean just to give you a very very simple example which may sound a bit odd but i can if i'm really thinking about something in my professional life and i can go to watch a football match and okay, I'm there. I'm watching the football match because I like football and I support my team, and I, and it's an escape. But sometimes I can look at the way that teams operate, literally watching them on a field, or watching the way that the manager or the coaches is dealing with them and dealing with the challenges that come with during the game, and it can just trigger something. Um, so I think that whole thing of how you build a team, how you get the best out of people who are very, very different, uh, I think that I think that is something that I looked at sport doing it better. And one of the reasons you say what what sort of inspired me to write the book, I think it was this feeling. Back then, I suppose thinking about the Labour Party and maybe we were losing our way a bit. Also, I think, and this is now pl- played out with what for me is the nightmare of Brexit the country slightly losing its way as well, mm-hmm. actually wondering whether politics and government, which kind of should be the pinnacle, I think, for any country, because you, you can't do without it, um, whether there were 
winning ways that were being used in sport and in business that I could actually start to... So that was the idea for the book, was to write about almost like a, a guide to winning from other worlds to see how it could apply to politics. And it turned out to be a very different sort of book. Yeah. Because it actually became a bit of a mix. It was a, It was like me writing about my experience of campaigns in politics and talking to other people in politics about delivering change, whether it was Northern Ireland or Bill Clinton getting through a crisis, whatever it might be. But then around that and building these these um, narratives and, and stories and examples from these other walks of life, particularly sport and business. And what was in, what was interesting, I think, by the end of it was that, and I don't think this is just me being a kind of bit of a romantic about sport, but I, I think I would say at the end of it, the impression I had was that sport does the best of winning best and business is, comes second and politics comes third. And why do you think that is? I think politics is probably harder, um, but I think also that we now have... I guess sport, for all the problems of doping and governance and corruption in football and all the stuff that we have that we hear and read about all the time, I think that sport still has a sufficient grip and hold on the public imagination that lots and lots and lots of people want to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid the gene pool for going into top-level politics is getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. So I think that's, but also I think it's that politics has become much harder. Uh, I think the media has a lot to do with that. I think the way that the media now covers politics almost relentlessly through a kind of negative prism. I think mm-hmm. that's made it difficult. I think the, I think the the sense that if you go into public life, you're not just putting yourself in there, but you're putting your family in there, and you're putting your past in there. That these are difficult things as well. Now I'm not saying that business people and sports people don't have to deal with that too, but not nearly in the same way. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing about sport is that it's 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 kind of it's not finite in that it kind of always goes on but there are moments that you can be building to all the time there's a certain purity of purpose isn't there it's probably more complicated in terms of you know running a country for a government well i think the thing about running a country for a government is that there aren't you don't have the same moments of cutoff even an election I and mean, i've been involved in loads of elections even as you win an election you don't really have that sense of we've won let's celebrate you just don't have that you're on to the next thing mm. whereas you see you know when a football team wins the champions league when a country wins the world cup there's a real sense of that is the moment yeah that we've arrived and we you know we've been working for this and we've reached it and i can remember i think i write about this in the book that i can remember the elections, I get all my books confused, and this might just be the <laughs> diaries, but I can remember the elections really feeling quite resentful that I wasn't enjoying it. And the reason I wasn't enjoying it was because I was already worrying about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I wasn't, en- I didn't enjoy 1997 election at all, mm. the night of it. I hated it. I wanted to be away from it because I, I was tired, I needed rest. And so I think with sport, it's like, you know, so there's Burnley, we've got a game tomorrow. And okay, once the game's finished, of course they're planning for the next one, right? But there's a there's a sense of that's a that's a moment, that's a finite event. Whereas I think with politics, they're very very few and far between. Yeah, I, 
I'd agree with that. I mean, it's going to sound like a complete kind of groupie here because I'm going to going to quote from one of your books. Just Quite to, right. So, you, so you know which one it's from. But I was really interested. You you were describing to win in politics. You said you you need a mindset that isn't comfortably locked into old fashioned truisms, but that's restless, challenging, and innovative, and open to new ideas and new people. And I was reading that, and I guess in the you know in a in a context that we're living now post-Brexit, which you've just mentioned, uh, Trump being elected. Um, do you sense there's a kind of a, a, a zeitgeist that uh, involves looking at things completely differently? And we've seen kind of Macron inventing yeah. a way of looking at the world, which which broke all of the, the rules. I'm not sure that how he looks at the world is breaking the rules, but I think what broke the rules was, was this extraordinary rise and the creation of something very, very new very, very quickly. Um, I actually think, I mean, I, I know Macron, and I, and I think the way that he's looking at the world is is very interesting, very innovative for France. But actually, in a sense, he's he's almost like he's dragging France into the modern world. Mm. Um, but I think that, that, that um, and by the way, when you read that out, I don't, I'm not sure we did it terribly well. Mm. Um, because I think one of the things that we have to own up to is that we didn't really bring on talent in a way that, maybe a, a big business organization would actively seek to do. We might have sort of looked around and we might have, but there wasn't a plan. Yeah. You're so focused on, you know, doing the things you have to do that we did. So we didn't bring talent on in that way. And I think that you'd, you'd have to say that if you look at um, where we are now, um, both as a country and as the Labour Party and as a world, if you like, uh, it's not great. It really isn't great. And so I think that we can't, you know, it's, it would be too simplistic for me to think, oh, you know, we were there for a long time. We won three elections. We kept the Tories out for so long. We were absolutely brilliant. And our opponents will say, blah, 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 blah. You're absolutely useless because of Iraq. And actually, neither of those statements are complete. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's wrong with political debate at the moment is is everything feels like it has to be very black and white and mm. i think i do think that again the media and particularly social media on this that you know you kind of have to have an opinion mm. you have to have a strong opinion you've got to be able to get it into a little you know 140 characters or fewer and so i think that we are i do think that i mean macron is an extraordinary phenomenon and it's true that as you go around the place, you, I meet people all the time, you know, why can't we have a new party? I feel completely homeless. I'm not, that, I don't like Corbyn. I don't like May. I don't like today's Labour Party. I don't like the Tory party. Where am I supposed to go? And I understand that feeling, but I'm not sure that our system lends itself in the same way that the French system does because the French, they, they have their president and then they have their parliament. Yeah. We have our parliament and then from that you get your, you get your prime minister. Yeah. Yeah, so the system's set up entirely differently. Mm. Um, just switching back to um, what what kind of drives you? I mean, we, you've you've written a book about winners. Uh, I, I kind of wonder. You you said after the sort of uh, after elections, generally, you kind of you'd had enough of that. It was kind of almost a relief. Mm. Um, where does that sort of drive and motivation to lead to win? Is that something you've always had? Where does that come from in you? Um, I don't know really. I think, but has it always been there? It has, and yet a lot of the time I feel I don't do enough. Um, so I, 
I, I feel that, for example, in relation to, you know, like doing a book, okay. I mean, look, there's a bookshelf over there. There are millions of books in the world, yeah. okay. Um, now, and I've written 14, but my next book's out very, very soon. Which is a good shelf full. It is, um, but in the end, you know, is it the same as winning the Champions League? Is it the same as being the best uh, ballerina that ever existed? Is it the same as, you know, inventing something that changes the world? No, it's not. And I, I actually, part of me, I, I'm always kind of a little bit, well, often a lot, unsatisfied with what I do and how I do it. And, yeah. and that is part of my, I think that's just part of my condition mm-hmm. as a human being. I'm, 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 I mean, I, I'm not saying I don't have moments of profound satisfaction. I do, but then they get dwarfed by something else. Mm. Um, I feel at the moment, for example, I, I, I actually, you know, and sometimes I'm, <laughs> these really strange moments, particularly when I'm being introduced at an event, like say I'm going to do your event, and I'll be sitting there and somebody will go up on the stage and they'll sort of read out, you know, a fraction of your kind of Wikipedia or your wherever they've got all this stuff from. And they'll sort of say things like, you know, and it's like he's led, led the most extraordinary life full of these amazing successes. And I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> it's not how my life feels. <laughs> I feel, for example, now in relation to something like Brexit, I just, you know, out and about, I will meet people and say, oh, thanks for what you're doing and keep fighting. Or I'll meet other people on the other side saying, you're a complete traitor, you're trying to stop this and da da da. And I'm, in myself, I'm thinking, I'm just not doing enough. Mm. I'm not doing enough. And so I, I think I've always had this motivation to whatever I'm doing to do more, whatever mm. I'm, however I'm doing it to try and do it better. Um, and that I think is something that that you know again came through the talking to people for the winners book was this sense that a lot of them have have. I remember the, I remember talking to Mourinho about when he threw his medal in the crowd mm. when he won the championship with the title with Chelsea and he threw the medal in the crowd. Now I remember at the time thinking that's quite a weird thing to do. I mean, like, if I took you upstairs now, I'd show you every mar- marathon, triathlon, half marathon, 10 kilometers. I've kept the medals, right? <laughs> yeah. No, no, there's nothing You're compared not chucking to... chucking them in the crowd. No, 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 no I'm not doing the, the old <laughs> Brian Clough, you can throw all your medals in the bin. Um, but, and I think with Mourinho, that was partly showmanship. Of course it was, and he's a big showman. But I think it's also, it's that feeling of next, you know, next, what next? And I definitely have a bit of that. I definitely have a bit of that. Um, and I like, you know, I like, I do like doing things that I've not done before. It's like this next book is my fourth novel. Uh, and actually the first, is, and it's very different to the first three. This yeah. one's about football and terrorism and the, and the first three were really about mental health. Yeah. And also it's the first book I've written with somebody else, which has been really interesting as well. How did that go? It was good. It was good. I mean, it was like, you know, we're mates and... Uh, uh, We've got very complementary personalities and skills, and so it was good. I really enjoyed it. But it's like he's a former Burnley player. I mean, they say you should never meet your heroes, but <laughs> he was like playing for us when I was a teenager, and he was a hero, Paul Fletcher. Um, but he's become a really good mate, and so yeah. So, so these things are all they're all interesting. I enjoy them. Um, but you know, that was Fiona who just popped in there to pick up her laptop. Yeah. Uh, if if you talk to her. You, she, I know because I've heard her say it to people. She would say to you that 
I'm a bit of a nightmare to live with because I'm I'm never really happy with what I've done. No, and that I, I mean you you talk in in the book winners about the mindset of a, of a winner, uh, and 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 actually you obviously looking through your background, obviously a certain number of people will know you for your involvement in politics. Um, yeah. But you're increasingly well known and have a high profile as a a campaigner on mental health issues. Um, and, and you talk about kind of being a, a nightmare to live with, but you, you, you've talked about uh, the importance of being open about mm. your own personal challenges mm. and about, you know, mental health challenges. Um, how did that come about? When did you, when did you feel comfortable, if you like, being able to talk to other people mm. about uh, the challenges that you've had, um, including your wife? Yeah, it's interesting. I've never felt uncomfortable. Um, I mean, I had a breakdown in the eighties, and 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 I was very lucky because I went, I was I was in newspapers. I was youngest Fleet Street news editor. Um, I blew up. Hospital, uh, off sick for quite a long time, and then I went back to my old job at the Mirror, and everybody knew. Everybody knew something had gone on, and I think I just took a judgment to just not hide not be ashamed mm. um and then what happened was that when i as it were jumped the fence into politics um and the, um, i was uh, to be honest even though i was a journalist and i knew the media i was surprised at the media interest in me straight away mm. like day one yeah um and so i realized they were going to start writing about my past in a way that I hadn't maybe reckoned on that much. And I can remember I got a phone call about it. I just I just made an instinctive judgment to talk about it. Yeah. Not to say, hold on a minute, this is a long time ago. This is the past. I could have done all that. Yeah. But I didn't. I just decided to talk about it. And I've never, ever, ever regretted that. And, and do you find that kind of process of disclosure, aside from it being a kind of a, you know, uh, excuse the phrase, a useful spin, um, because you kind of know that there'll be media implications if you're not fully open and you're experienced enough to kind of make a judgment on well, that. But the disclosure itself, do you find that helpful to the process of, of, of dealing with I do. mental health? I do. I don't, uh, and by the way, I don't sort of evangelize to others to say you should be open because I understand why people might not want to be. Mm. All I can say to them is that it has really helped me. Mm. And lots of people say to me, oh, well, it helps me as well. You know, so it helps other people if people like me are open. And that's fine, and I like that, and I'm I'm happy about that. But actually, I get a lot out of it. I enjoy the campaigning on mental health. Mm. I'm in the middle, at the moment, I'm making a TV documentary about depression. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm not, a, TV can be a big faff and what have you, but I know, I'm confident it's going to be a good film. I'm confident it's going to have an impact. Mm. I'm confident that it'll just push the dial a bit more. Um, and Where do you think we are in terms of the sort of the, the social standing, the acceptance of, uh, of you know, depression, um, mental health problems think, and illnesses? I think we're making massive progress. I think, I think the, and I'm, I work with the Time to Change campaign, and I think attitudes are changing. My massive worry at the moment is that, Attitudes are improving. People are becoming more and more aware, but then they're finding the services aren't necessarily there for them. Yeah, that's a real problem. Mm. But I think you've still got to keep going with that campaigning because mm. I, I do see the mental health stuff in the same 
light as things like um, women's equality, racial equality, gay rights, uh, universal suffrage, all of these things, because they're they're big campaigns that took an awful long time to win. Mm. And I feel with mental health uh, and mental illness in particular that it's a long campaign because behind us we've had centuries of stigmatization, taboo, taboo and all this sort of thing. Absolutely. And I you know, you know, there was figures out recently about the the numbers of people living on the streets now. Well, that's a sign of how we're going backwards because the you know the the vast majority of, of will have some sort of mental health issue, mm. right? Mm. It's not just some. A lot of it might be down to broken marriages. It might be down to welfare cuts, losing the house, whatever. But actually, I think there'll be a lot of mental illness there. And the fact that we, all of us, I'm not just blaming the government for this. All of us, we might like to give a few of them a few quid every now and then. But the truth is, we walk past them all every day. Yeah. And so that says that we're that. So that that kind of thing says we haven't moved as far forward because. It ought to be, we ought to feel such a visceral reaction to that yeah. that we just don't, as a society, tolerate it. But we do tolerate it. And what, what do you think organisations, employers can do to support people? I think, I think employers are fundamental. I think this is actually an area where, in a way, they're as important, if not in some circumstances, much more important than government and even, and even than healthcare as well. Um. Because the I know a lot of people, and it, is, and it is definitely changing in the workplace. I mean, I've, you know, the number of companies that are now organising events, getting people to go in and talk to them, trying to encourage openness, human resources departments being much more skilled and, and so forth. And I think they've got a long way to go, but I think the best of the best are doing it really, really well. Mm. I think there's a mass in the middle that are trying harder. And then I think that you've still got some that are really pretty poor at what they do. But I think the most important thing is that people who work for these companies feel supported when they're well and feel that they would be supported if for any reason they weren't well. Yeah, And I think that is about encouraging openness and so much of it has to come from the top. I wish we had, I mean, you know, very, very few public figures speak out about this stuff. You've had a handful of MPs. Yeah. Very few business leaders. I mean, in terms of really senior people, very, very few. Yeah. So we're still struggling to get that sense of the leadership in business saying, do you know what? Look, it happened to me. doesn't matter. I've come through it. I'm fine. And I had great support. And, and I think even the idea of everybody within an organization knowing the person and it might be organisational. I often talk about when, when I was a journalist, and we had the when the trade unions were very strong, and you had this thing: the father of the chapel, the mother of the chapel, and these were people in every branch. So, like the news desk, the newsroom, uh, you know, the the sub editors. They all had their own little chapel. Yeah. And there was a father or a mother that you that you looked to. They were elected. And that was the person you went to. And I think you could develop that kind of system. And they wouldn't have to be the top people. It might be, you know, you, we all know in, in some organisations that the, there are people at every level who make the organisation tick. Yeah. might be a cleaner. It might be a secretary. It might yeah. be a driver. Yeah. The, who's the person that within your group you go to. Mm. And do you think, uh, I mean, my experience of this is that... Um, 
there needs to be more training uh, of whether it's middle management or mm. it could be support staff, um, you know, much in the way, uh, you know, bereavement. If you don't know how to deal with bereavement, mm. um, you know, my wife's in education. She was in leadership roles and they don't wing it when it comes to bereavement. Mm. They have a very, very clearly outlined policy mm. and set of procedures um, that click into place as yeah. soon as, as soon as it needs to be. Yeah. Um, and they then cascade that knowledge throughout mm. the school mm. and throughout the staff, etc. Are you seeing that, or have you had a, you know have you heard of that happening within organisations around? Yeah, I think there is. I think I think there are two things going on. I think that there is. I think the whole idea of mental health first aid is gathering pace mm -hmm. slowly, not fast enough. But it's as a concept, it's kind Again. of out there, yeah. and that needs to be that needs to be developed. And I think the more enlightened um, employers and the more enlightened human resources department are developing an understanding that their their management in particular have to have certain very, very basic skills in terms of dealing with the potential problems that some of their their, their staff are going to face and that they're going to face themselves. Yeah. So I think it's, look, it's very patchy. It's very, very patchy. But I've been in some places that are absolutely fantastic. Mm. I've been in other places that are terrible. And... You know, within the really big employers, uh, I mean, one of our big em biggest employers is the National Health Service. And as an employer, not always the best. No. Um, and I think it's that... Cobbler's shoes. Eh? Cobbler's shoes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a little bit of that going on. And, 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 and now, some of them are great. There are parts of the health service, as an employer, they're terrific. Mm. But it's, a very, it's like any big organisation you know talking the talk and actually doing it often different yeah I, on, a, on a kind of related subject i was um i have to say i was really impressed uh uh by kind of chaps you've written on uh harnessing the extreme mind mm. uh and speaking about the the real positives mm. Um, of people who have a different way of thinking mm. uh, and and often incredibly successful people, leaders. And I know you, you wrote a piece about, you know, people like Winston Churchill and... Lincoln. Lincoln. Um, Darwin. Yeah. The, You've got your thing at the Royal Geographical, Darwin. Um, that actually you see it as a, a kind of a, a central part of their personality. For sure. And there are real benefits, um, not just to them as individuals, but, but also to organisations that they work with. Well, I think we, I think we do tend to fear and shun things and people that are thought to be different. But actually, what are we all looking for all the time? We're looking for, we're looking for people to be special. Yeah, we're looking for leaders. We're looking for talent. We're looking for, you know, just to throw a few sort of David Brent style. <laughs> cliches we want people who think outside the box we want people <laughs> going the extra mile all that stuff <laughs> taking it to the next level well you know you're not going to do that if you if your mindset automatons is to, is to be ordinary yeah you know you we're looking all the time of course in every organization you need the the people who kind of you know do the grind that makes the the makes the train run on time right yeah. you need all that but you also need talent and you need exceptionalism. And, and, and I think sometimes we, you know, we put, we, we kind of try and keep it in a box when actually we should be trying to bring it out of the box. Mm. And so 
you know, again, if you're talking to Fiona, she'd tell you that my least favorite word in the world is content. Don't believe in, I don't believe in contentment. I think contentment is too close to complacency. Yeah. And likewise, I think that we, you know, we, 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 we turn against people because we think they're abnormal, but now there's normal and there's abnormal and there's, there's abnormal that might seem dangerous and we don't like it, but, but actually abnormality can be, it can be what you need. Yeah. And going back to the conversation we were having, uh, you know, earlier, you know, embracing people from different backgrounds who yeah. think differently, yeah. looking at kind of commonality, uh, yeah. being much more inclusive yeah. uh, rather than this is this is my area. These are the people I know I'm familiar with. I, I get how they think and do. Things. And also, I think that the I do think this whole sort of, you know, the algorithmization of life where we're, we've been driven into ever narrower circles of our own likes and our own interests and our own existence You've got to be conscious of that. We all do it. We all are drawn to people that we're drawn to, and you know, we'll, sure. there's a bit of mirroring going on the whole time. We've all, that's always been the case. But I think, I think you need to try to think about how you bring in talent that is often that is going to give you something that you don't necessarily have yourself, or you don't have within the team that you've got. Um, and so again, to go back to your very first question about, you know, if you're looking at great teams, it might seem obvious to say, well, of course the best teams are in sport, but why? Why, <laughs> why should they be? Why, why do we, why in politics, for example, just look at this shambles of a government at the moment. Why do we tolerate the idea that, oh, well, politics is different, government's different. It's always yeah. been like that. Why do yeah. we tolerate that? Yeah. Um, in business, I think it's, more hierarchical still you know you tend to people worry about the next level up they worry about their boss but actually is that the right way to run a good team mm. are the best talent managers not the ones who actually understand that teamship is about developing leadership at every level of the organization yeah and, and one of your kind of pals clive woodward he he mm. speaks very very well about that and pull that into his kind of management and coaching yeah. philosophy didn't yeah you? making sure that everybody knew at any moment on the pitch you know what do you do that kind and of then he's a very interesting example actually of the the sort of fear of outsiders and otherness so then he goes to try to do it in football and football didn't really want him no um and i think that was a mistake i think somebody like clive would be really really good at and, and it showed he did it when he went to work for the boa and yeah you know, so I, I think we I think we get scared of other people's talent sometimes. Yeah. Um and we want we want to be comfortable in our mindset that says, Well we've already we've always done it like this and we don't need somebody to come well, from. Well you're outside. disruptive, aren't you? If you come in from outside <laughs> yeah. and you've got something that works, that's yeah. that's a threat. But if you look at the if you look at the the real I mean, who are the managers at the moment in, in football that People are saying are really kind of sort of doing something a bit different, and you know, they're they're all disruptors. Guardiola's a disruptor. Yeah, Klopp's a disruptor. Wenger was a disruptor. Uh, best of all, of course, Sean Dyche. I mean, <laughs> easy, easily the best manager. None of none of that lot. None of the others could have got Burnley to fourth. None of them. Guardiola so, could never so, have got so Burnley in, to fourth. In terms of, uh, and we could talk and talk. About, I'm kind of conscious of time. I mean, if you were thinking about kind of heroes, I mean, you've obviously you've 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 had access you've interviewed a lot of people um 
in your time, both within your, your books, but, but wider than that. Who, who sticks out? Who, who's the individual or the individuals that really stick out? Um, I think Mandela. But again, I, I think that's partly because you're in the sense you had in his presence of being in the presence of, of history. Um, I imagine, I, I mean, I think it, you went about heroes. I think, I mean, I, I, I think obviously never met him um, because he was, he was dead by the time I was born. But I think the two people that I, I think about a lot in terms of, God, I wish I could have been in, got inside their heads. One is Link, Abraham Lincoln, the other is Shakespeare. Um, I don't think there's, you know, sometimes if I'm sort of just sitting bored, I'll, I'll get the laptop out and I'll, and I'll just Google things like things Shakespeare said on, <laughs> and I'll just put in any word or any emotion or any thought, or any, any human capacity. And he nails it. And he just comes out with it like, time and time and time again. And I just mm. think, oh my God, what a brain. Yeah. Um, so I think, and I think of people who are, yeah, people who I've met, I'd say, I'd say Mandela. Um, but then you see, you, you can see great human conduct. I mean, you know, just the other day, there's Tessa Jowell standing up in the House of Lords, and she's a Indeed. really close friend of ours, right? And so I've known Tessa for decades, and we were on holiday with them recently. And so watching somebody face up to illness like that, that's yeah. kind of heroic in its own way. But I'm not going to say, like, you know, would I... Would I describe that as a hero? No, but it's heroic behaviour. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, I've been very, very lucky, the sort of people I have been able to work with and, and meet and talk to. And uh, I think the older I've got, the more I've been able to look for and to find really good qualities in most people. Is that a kind of a, a, a more reflective side of you? I think so. I think so. I think, I think I've... In the, I mean, look, I'm still very intolerant. Uh, I don't suffer fools, and I'm, and I can get very impatient and what have you. But I, I think, I find myself put it this way: I find myself, say, with my kids or with colleagues, drawing their attention to the positives in other people much, much more than I used to. Yeah. Um, and I think it is a more re reflective thing. And I think it's also this sense of knowing that you know, in 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 any organisation, you. You can't all be lead. They can't all be leaders. They can't all be the top person. They can't all be making the big decisions. You've got, but within the process for that, you need really good people at every level. And that, that to me is how you how you build a sense of of teamship. And actually, I think that you know, I mean, I mean, I'm very much I operate on my own, and I'm my own boss. And but I'm involved in all sorts of different organisations and campaigns and mm. and teams. And I like that sense of being part of lots of different teams alistair could talk it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thanks very much good thank you you can hear more from alistair at this year's future talent conference at the royal geographical society in london on march the 22nd where he'll be discussing how we can change the lens on mental health with his friend jeff mcdonald the former global vp of hr at unilever We'll also be hosting Seleni Henry, who will be discussing his passion for promoting diversity and lifelong learning. Also, Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA, who will be reflecting on the response to his report into modern working practices. 
and Margaret Heffernan, who will be exploring the importance of forging friendships at work. Thank you for listening. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon.